Richard Lancelin Green, known to his brilliant colleagues and invested readers as a dedicated historian and unrelenting writer, was a passionate, driven, and a universally heralded expert of Arthur Conan Doyle and the worldwide phenomenon of Sherlock Holmes. His deep-rooted connection with British literature and biographical media, as well as his inclination to sacrifice personal riches for professional growth, was cut short by an unexplainable, unsolved death in the early hours of March 27th, 2004, leaving all who knew him across London, England, and the Sherlock fandom at large grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. As a hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analyses, this is an examination of the death of Richard Green and the mysterious circumstances left at his Kensington, West London version of 221B Baker Street. This is Cold Case Detective. Richard Gordon Lancelin Green was born on a warm summer day, the 10th of July 1953, to parents Roger Lancelin Green and Sidney Herbert Burdett in Bebbington, Cheshire, England. He joined his parents and two older siblings in their lovely historic home near Liverpool. Richard's father, Roger, was a famous author of children's books that reimagined myths of archaic literature, adapting stories from Arthurian, Homeric, and Robin Hood legends. He was good friends with the creative masterminds C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, and is believed to be the one who recommended Lewis title his popular fantasy series The Chronicles of Narnia, forever etching his name in the British literature history books. Richard's mother, Sidney Burdett, channeled similar artistic skill sets as a drama teacher and academic mediator. The Lancelin Green family resided in a beautifully plotted land that had actually been in family ownership since 1093 AD, given to Richard's ancestors when Randall Green married the heiress of William Lancelin under Elizabeth I's reign. The manor itself, named Poulton Lancelin, was erected hundreds of years later and the Lancelin Green heirs retained their lordship for generations. This residence was so renowned by fellow Englishmen that the great Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote about the manor in his published English notebooks in the 1850s, remarking on its beauty, privacy, and modernity. However, if we fast forward a century to Richard's birth, the house would have been described as English, meaning it was a picturesque property, but without an actual amount of wealth or fancy flourishes to fill it. Richard's childhood reflected similar themes. He wasn't the most popular student in school, nor did he blend in with a big group of cliques. Rather, Richard was a unique but brilliant child, described by his peers as always appearing to know something everyone else didn't. His unrelenting slyness took away his ability to forge frequent friendships, and his tinted spectacles gave off an academic persona that beckoned a fair share of teasing. But what he lacked in social grace was made up for through an amazing analytical prowess. 
Richard's incredible mind and his logical understanding of maths, science, and puzzle solving puts him at the top of his class. And yet, the best place to find him after school or on weekend mornings was his father's cathedral of a library, pouring into children's books and escaping into fiction, finding a deep-rooted fascination with one narrative in particular. Arthur Conan Doyle's Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. At just 11 years old, Richard wasted no time in delving into the world of Sherlock and Watson. He would memorize the rules of Holmes and Watson's scientific deductions and their obsessive complexes. His own obsession went beyond just the words in Conan Doyle's novels, however. As a child, Richard would collect items related to Sherlock Holmes, little mementos referred to as Sherlockiana. These pieces of Conan Doyle's detective fiction were eventually organised in the attic of the Poulton Lancelin Hall to create Richard's own version of 221B Baker Street, a realistic and finely detailed monument that would go down in history as the most comprehensive ode to Sherlock Holmes in all the collections around all of the world. When it came time to venture into higher education, Richard studied English at Berkshire's Bradfield College and then University College, Oxford. He continued his Sherlock projects through schooling and spent time travelling the world post-grad to enhance his experiences with various cultures. Yet, something inside of him would not let Arthur Conan Doyle's genius go, and he decided to make the world's greatest detective and their creator his career focus. Over the next several decades, Richard catapulted himself to the top of the list of Conan Doyle experts, publishing scholarly articles and biographical works, as well as collections of old Sherlock stories and fan-related content. He even teamed up with fellow literary tycoons, such as John Michael Gibson, to co-edit extensive and never-before-seen novels related to Arthur Conan Doyle's vast history. These projects, in combination with Richard's solo Conan Doyle endeavours, earned him a prestigious Edgar Award with the Mystery Writers of America, along with universal acclaim from other scholars and borderline worship from heated Holmes fanbases like the Baker Street Irregulars. Richard embraced the admiration and broke from his childhood shyness, becoming more of a showman and dressing in period-accurate costumes around the Greater London area as he hosted Sherlock-inspired events across town. As Richard entered the middle stages of life, he set his sights on writing a three-volume biography of Arthur Conan Doyle, the greatest account ever attempted, and he went above and beyond in note-taking and accessing materials not yet released to the public from the Conan Doyle estate. These resources included private manuscripts and papers written by Conan Doyle and kept under lock and key, seen by Richard as vital pieces to complete his Conan Doyle puzzle. After visiting with Doyle's descendants, including his daughter, Dame Jean Conan Doyle, Richard was informed the papers he desired were to be sold to the British Library and held by library scientists still accessible to the public. It was fair enough for Richard, and he awaited the sale with much anticipation, getting a sneak peek at the papers after befriending Dame Jean. However... As time went on, other members of the Conan Doyle family tree and their constituents saw Richard as a threat to their estate and drove a wedge between him and Dame Jean. When he wrote less than flattering articles about Conan Doyle in local papers, the tensions ended up turning her away from Richard completely. 
Richard broke off contact with the estate, deciding to wait until after Dame Jean passed away when the papers would eventually be sent to the British Library anyway. In a stark change of events, however, it was announced the sought-after manuscripts were to be sold at Christie's Auction House in London years after Dame Jean died in 1997. This infuriated Richard, who went to great lengths to try and stop the auction, demanding her final wishes be granted and the British Library receive Conan Doyle's legacy. Over the next seven years, Richard lost a lot of his respect within the literary and Sherlock community, writing inaccurate articles and spewing a dislike for Arthur Conan Doyle himself. Then, in a misfortunate change of circumstances, mere weeks before the long-awaited sale of the manuscripts was to occur, Richard Green informed his family and friends that he was being followed. He stated his opposition to Christie's auction was attracting unwanted surveillance, and felt his world was caving in on him. The paranoia fused with his daily life, and decades worth of dedicating time to his passion were about to come crashing down in a tragic defeat when on March 27th, 2004, Priscilla West decided her worries for her brother's physical and mental well-being warranted a visit to his home. And on that fateful day, she stepped foot into her brother's abode of miseries one final time. Let's review the timeline that led to Richard's death. As the 1980s transitioned to the 1990s, Richard Lancelin Green decides to write a biographical trilogy of Arthur Conan Doyle's life. One novel for his childhood, another novel for his literary career, and a final novel for the author's descent into dissociation. To accompany such lofty dreams, Richard makes a final push to study the lost manuscripts written by Conan Doyle and controlled by his heirs. In the following months, Richard investigates the manuscripts' movements. He discovers one of the Conan Doyle heirs, Adrian Conan Doyle, stole the papers for himself and stashed them away in Switzerland, scheming to sell them to private collectors unbeknownst to the rest of the family. However, after realising Adrian had died before the con could be put in place, Richard looks elsewhere for the archives across England. Fast forward to the early 1990s, and Richard strikes up a personal relationship with Dame Jean Conan Doyle surviving daughter of Arthur Conan Doyle and the true controller of her father's hidden manuscripts. Dame Jean takes a liking to Richard and welcomes him to her home, telling him the papers will someday be sold to the British Library for public access. During their friendship, Dame Jean goes as far as to show Richard a preview of the documents, which includes treasures such as Arthur Conan Doyle's unpublished first novel and illustrations of his years as a whaling ship surgeon. Around the midpoint of the 90s, Richard's relationship with Dame Jean begins deteriorating. She claims it's due to words written by Richard in the public sphere that cast her family in a negative light. But others believe she is under the persuasion of fellow Conan Doyle descendants that are looking to sell off the hidden manuscripts for profits from private buyers rather than sending them to the British Library. Richard is left heartbroken, his chance at finishing the biographical trilogy diminished as the access to the papers fades into darkness. 
This darkness almost reaches the point of pitch black hopelessness on November 18th, 1997, when Dame Jean Conan Doyle passes away from complications of cancer. The surviving heirs of Arthur Conan Doyle's married family gain control of Sir Arthur's sought-after archive, and Richard loses any and all personal contacts with the Doyles and their representatives. As another decade turns through to the second millennia, Richard loses a bit of touch with his glorification of Arthur Conan Doyle. He relents the loss of the manuscripts and nearly gives up on his biographical aspirations. Richard awaits for the papers to enter the British Library, but when they never do, he pents up more anger with the estate. Sometime within the first four years of the 2000s, plans are put into place for the hidden manuscripts to be sold at Christie's auction house for the highest bidder, regardless of their motivations. Richard hears of the sale and immediately devises ways to block the auction from happening at all. He threatens to introduce proof to the courts that Dame Jean intended for the British Library to receive the papers, and becomes the central target of the Conan Doyle heirs. Soon after the auction is announced, Richard learns the heirs in question are actually rather distant relatives of Sir Arthur, including his great-nephew Charles Foley and Foley's two cousins. Richard questions how such estranged family members along the bloodline could control this treasured archive, and starts believing they may have had a darker role in Dame Jean's death. Thinking these men are behind the sale for purely monetary motivations, Richard claims they've received help from someone with a vendetta specifically against Richard himself. As February of 2004 wraps up, Richard's worries evolve into a full-blown paranoia. He calls friends and family, including the London Times, telling them that something might happen to him, with a sinister emphasis on the word something. He carries out bizarre gestures at home. For example, when guests arrive at his apartment building, Richard refuses to talk inside of his flat and meets visitors in a secluded garden area, fearing his personal spaces have been wiretapped. At the end of the month, Richard sends a mysterious note to his sister, Priscilla, with a set of three different phone numbers and a message that reads, Please keep these numbers safe. Through the first few weeks of March 2004, Richard continues his pleas for understanding from his friends, acting more troubled in both public and private. Within the final week of Richard's life, between March 20th and March 26th, Richard phones his former peer and friend, John Gibson, and confides in Gibson about his fears. Gibson attempts to reassure him that he has, quote, nothing to worry about. Richard promises he is genuinely worried, and Gibson asks Richard if he fears for his life, to which Richard says, I do. On the evening of Friday, March 26th, Richard has dinner with his friend Lawrence Keane. While at the restaurant, Richard tells Lawrence an unidentified American is after him, following him around London and attempting to bring him down due to his opposition to the manuscript auction. After dinner, as the pair leaves the area, Richard points to a low-lit car behind them and claims it's his pursuing subject. Later that night, Richard calls the editor of the Sherlock Holmes Journal, asking for a clip from a BBC radio interview in which a Conan Doyle heir admits the manuscripts were to be given to the British Library per Dame Jean's will. The editor checks his records and finds no such quote, to which Richard responds with accusations of betrayal. Before the editor hangs up, he tells Richard he's lost his mind. 
Deeper into the night, Priscilla calls her brother's home to check up on his health. However, when Richard does not pick up, the answer machine chimes with an abnormal recording, that of a generic American voice, instead of Richard's usual greeting. The next morning, on March 27th, Priscilla wakes up disturbed by the previous night's silence and calls her brother a few more times, once more connecting to the strange answering machine message. She throws down the phone and decides to pay Richard a visit in person, born from her worries of his well-being. When she arrives, Priscilla finds the door locked, but knocks anyway, only to be met with further silence. She calls the police for assistance. Later that day, authorities arrive at Richard's flat and barge open the door. Inside, they discover Richard's body, lying face down on his bed, garroted by a shoelace still tied around his neck, a wooden spoon resting near his hand. Around him sit a few stuffed animals, a half-empty bottle of gin, no notes, no signs of forced entry, nothing but the massive catalogue of Sherlock Holmes paraphernalia surrounding the now-deceased mastermind of Arthur Conan Doyle. In the weeks following Richard's demise, the coroner's office confirms he died of strangulation, but cannot label it either as a homicide or suicide leaving his fate up in the air. Forensics carry out no fingerprinting on Richard's flat, collect zero DNA samples, and even skip out on interviewing Richard's closest friends, such as John Gibson. Leads are tossed aside, no suspects are found by authorities, and Richard Lancelin Green fades into obscurity due to an undetermined fate. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. When examining Richard Green's entire portfolio of mishaps and suspicious followings, a lot of small details stick out like a sore thumb. These potential clues are used as focal points for both sides of the argument in whether or not Richard was murdered or a victim of suicide. However, one case point found at the scene of the crime is debated notably more than other factors such as the objects lying around Richard's body or the status of the door to his flat. That is, of course, the recording on Richard's answering machine. Ask one of Richard's closest allies or former co-editor John Gibson or any number of his fellow peers and they will tell you that Richard's telephone would revert to a self-spoken message after a few rings whenever Richard wasn't able to answer the phone. This Oxford-accented recording had actually been used by Richard for decades. It was, unarguably, a staple of Richard's home. Thus, when it inexplicably changed the night Richard Green was murdered, it sent a mental alarm to both Gibson and Richard's sister. Both Gibson and Priscilla described this new recording as American and robotic, a bit unsettling and absolutely not Richard's voice. It was so jarring that Gibson had to ring the number again just to be sure he hadn't called someone else by mistake. But, alas, this was indeed his friend's telephone. 
Priscilla had similar reactions, her gut telling her that the voice was that of the mysterious American following Richard as he had claimed days prior, and probably his murderer. These fears raised important questions. Why would a potential killer delete his victim's voice from his unimportant answering machine and then record his own? It would leave behind evidence for law enforcement to study and decipher. There was no sadistic calling card left behind or a ransom message. No, the new recording was short and simple, if not a bit creepy. It wouldn't be until after the dust had settled around Richard's death and proper investigations were held by authorities that the American voice was realized to be that of a pre-recorded message installed on the device by its American manufacturers. Gibson, who spent weeks thinking about his friend's final days, claimed in the New Yorker that Richard's original recording was deleted by Richard himself in order to arouse suspicion around his death, and thus the default message became the one heard when his phone rang. There aren't many counter-arguments. However, a large sector of people believe Richard's original recording was deleted by his murderer, not purposefully, but by accident. They believe that the killer was attempting to tamper with the phone and mistakenly reset the settings, or maybe was going to leave behind a new recording, but out of paranoia, didn't take the time to tape themselves. But why risk leaving more evidence behind? Why not just pull the cord if they wanted to disable the telephone? Yet, on the other hand, why change the answering machine moments before suicide? The phone recording debacle will cause confusion for eternity, and without a doubt creates the biggest mystery within the mystery. Who changed that setting, and for what purpose? Alas, it is very likely we may never know. If you were to take a poll on everyone who has looked into Richard Green's case file, you'd likely receive a 50-50 even split on theories related to either suicide or homicide explaining Richard's death. Many of those interested cannot make up their minds, and those who do, do so with lingering doubts and obviously under a bevy of unanswerable questions. To those who support the theory of a self-inflicted demise, the first thing they usually point to is the lack of evidence showing someone else besides Richard entering his apartment building around the time of March 26th. The front door was locked and the only people to force themselves in were police, not even Priscilla attempted to break in. The windows were secure and in one piece, nothing was broken or displaced in any of the rooms, and most telling of all, Nothing was stolen or missing. It's curious that a man withholding millions of dollars worth of literary history and Sherlock memorabilia would be murdered and all of his prized possessions would be left alone. Another argument this group of theorists uses revolves around the wooden spoon found near Richard's body. Without a doubt, Richard's cause of death was the result of a garroting via shoelace. So what could the spoon have been used for? An object like the wooden spoon would be necessary for self-strangulation. Used in a twisting mechanism seen in historical depictions of garroting to tighten the shoelace. However, a killer would have no use for such a thing. They could simply use their hands. The third aspect to the suicidal theory also highlights Richard's collapsing mental state. 
In the years between Dame Jean's untimely death and his own, Richard saw his life's passion project slowly slip through his fingers. The Conan Doyle family rejected him, the artifacts he sought went further into hiding, and his respect amongst the community he so valiantly built quickly disappeared. Both family and friends alike noticed his behaviour went from dedicated to erratic, believing he was the target of an assassination or other massive scheme to get him killed. He started making up sightings, calling the press to plead for help, and isolating himself. His behaviour signalled a man at the end of his sanity, unable to grapple with the long road to failure. One unique spin on the suicide theory, emphasised by Richard's colleague John Gibson, is that not only was Richard's death a suicide, but it was purposefully designed to look like a murder. These theorists point out that Richard once wrote in an essay about a popular Sherlock Holmes, titled The Problem of Thor Bridge, in which Holmes is sent to solve the murder of a woman and discovers she actually shot herself in hopes to frame her rival for murder. In a similar vein, Richard could have gone out as an ode to his favourite author, tricking the world into thinking he was murdered in a case only Sherlock himself could crack. It would give reason as to why Richard kept alerting the newspapers of something happening to him, to make sure they broadcasted the stunt. It was later revealed by Priscilla that the three phone numbers her brother frantically gave her before his death were for local journalists. It might also explain why he deleted the answering machine recording, to leave the impression someone else was covering up their tracks. So, who would Richard try to frame? Well, it just so happened that the American fellow he claimed he was being followed by was in fact a representative of the Conan Doyle estate, and former peer of Richard's who worked with him back in the days of his acquaintance with Dame Jean. The two had a falling out, and Richard always felt that it was the American who was to blame for the crumbling companionship and loss of the manuscripts. With years to build up animosity and distaste, Richard could have tried sending a final message, attempting to frame the man he felt ruined his life. This specific theory went up in smoke, however, when David Gran of The New Yorker interviewed the American in December of 2004. This American, who was never officially identified, gave an alibi for the night Richard died, and said he wasn't even aware of Richard's animosity towards him. So suicide is one explanation, but if the suicide theories are wrong, and the American wasn't at fault, who could have killed Richard Lancelin Green? It couldn't have been a random robbery-homicide combination due to no forced entry and a full inventory of all the valuables, but homicide theorists claim that Richard still could have been a victim of targeted murder. They claim that through Richard's inflammatory writings in the years post-Dame Jean's death, someone could have been slighted by his obsessions and sought to kill him. They also believe it may still have been orchestrated by the Conan Doyle estate, seeing as though Richard was the biggest obstacle in the heirs receiving millions from the auction. Richard had proof that Dame Jean was looking to give her father's manuscripts to the British Library, and was suspicious of her death in the first place, which could have persuaded the guilty parties to act against him. 
Sadly, due to the lack of forensic work done at the scene of the crime and no fingerprints or DNA samples ever picked up, finding a suspect will be nearly impossible. And yet the supporters of the murder hypothesis won't let the other facts go ignored. They argue that even with the wooden spoon and shoelace, self-strangulation via garrote is incredibly difficult to carry out and that both objects are prone to snapping or breaking. Most shoelaces are thinly woven and unlikely to survive that type of aggressive binding. Theorists also point to the half bottle of gin and Richard's love for wine. Richard was a wine connoisseur, even drinking it at the dinner the night before he died, and his closest allies found it hard to believe he'd forego his own drink and instead turn to gin with his last meal. Then again, this could have been to throw off the scent of suicide and trick investigators. In addition, the murder theorists highlight Richard's behavior leading up to March 27th. They remind us of Richard's psychological history, how he never exhibited signs of mental disorders or psychosis. Even his sister, Priscilla, remarked how there were no trips to psychologists or medications prescribed for his mental health. He was always deemed healthy of both body and mind and thus never showed inclinations towards suicide. In fact, just hours before Richard passed, he made plans with a friend to take a holiday in Italy in a few short weeks and never left a suicide note behind. Strange for a man known for his note-taking and letter-sending. However, it must be said that there are countless suicides every day in which the victim shows no symptoms of depression and even more in which no note is left behind. In reality, the complete lack of physical evidence and growing details of circumstantial evidence helps prove and disprove both the assumptions of suicide and homicide, sending arguments into an infinite loop and attributing one piece of the case to another, when truthfully, everything could be connected to nothing at all. What could have meaning might actually be meaningless. For a case revolving around a detective who always had the answer, it is difficult to accept that we will probably never receive a definitive answer at all. Before we divulge our hypothesis of Richard Lancelin Green's unsolved death, we want to make it known that our conclusions presented in Cold Case Detective are purely logical speculation based on evidence, circumstance, and factual subtext. We are only privy to the same information presented in this podcast, and we do not promise certainty or an expert guarantee on the findings we reach in closing. We simply observe, research, and report. In the case of Richard Green, we believe that while the possibility of murder cannot be 100% ruled out, he died as a result of self-strangulation. We do not think Richard was attempting to frame anyone specifically, nor trying to angle his death as an honor to the fictional character he loved. Rather, we believe Richard was a man who felt he had reached the end of an energy draining path, void of further opportunity. He had watched his entire life's work swirl down the drain when he was so close to achieving greatness. Imagine if you had chased your wildest dreams to the brink of success, only to watch it burn on the finish line. It is a chaotic thought, and one that could easily wear down the psyche over the years. 
Feeling as though there is nothing left to live for is, sadly, an emotion that humans will feel from time to time. Not one of us is more than a run of misfortune away from confronting issues such as depression, anxiety and hopelessness, and none of us are immune to heartbreak. Sometimes that is the tipping point, and in this case, we believe it was for Richard. In terms of physical evidence, there is no rhyme or reason as to why a theoretical murderer would use a wooden spoon to enact the garrote, nor is there a rational, convincing explanation as to how the killer could have got in and out through the locked doors. As often is seen in cases of suicide around the world, the victim lets life go on as normal up until the fateful moment. For Richard, outside of his paranoia, he kept his life running per the status quo. He made plans, talked to friends, continued his research. One does not have to alert the world they are ending their life. This is not a film, and sometimes we do not get the results spoon-fed to us, spelled out and encased with gold. It may be hard to comprehend, but so often is the unexplainable. Arthur Conan Doyle defeated that notion through his heroic P.I. Richard Lancelin Green studied that fascination until his final breath. The most tragic aspect of the entire ordeal is Richard's biographical trilogy wasn't actually without a future. When the auction at Christie's was finally held on May 16th, 2004, less than two months after Richard's death, it was revealed that Dame Jean did indeed include in her will that the most important documents from her father's manuscript be given to the British Library. Thus, Richard would have been able to complete his project, only needing a bit more patience. It's proof that our imaginations can warp reality. Richard believed there were powers above taking away his one true love, when really, everything was going to work out in the end. A heart-wrenching truth in a tale lacking much certainty at all. Unlike the stories he loved so dearly as a child and researched so passionately as an adult, Richard Lancelin Green's death is void of a scientific deduction, left at the figurative bottom of the Reichenbach Falls without a Sherlock Holmes or Dr. John H. Watson to come to the rescue and solve the case. He deserves to be remembered not for a possible stunt at the end of his days, but rather for the continuous contributions to the literary history he made and the dedicated energy he fed into society, giving meaning to accomplishing dreams no matter how impossible they may seem. We can all take a page from Richard's book and decide to let our insecurities go and fight for what we love, no matter who tries to shoot us down. Richard leaves behind a physical legacy of Arthur Conan Doyle academia and Sherlock fandom, but what he truly leaves behind is a spiritual legacy of hope in a lifelong mission, one that we believe in and can be inspired by to maybe make a positive impact on the world ourselves. As I'm sure Richard Lancelin Green would agree, it's elementary. This is Cold Case Detective. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cold Case Detective Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so simply by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. It really helps us expand our reach and bring awareness to the cases we cover. 
If you'd like us to investigate a specific case, perhaps even one close to home or that of a loved one, please fill out the submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Cold Case Detective Podcast.